Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. A number of states are taking it upon themselves to lower carbon emissions by adopting aggressive clean energy targets. In states such as California, Washington, and Massachusetts, lawmakers are considering legislation requiring utilities to get 100% of their electricity from renewable sources. California already generates two-thirds of its power from renewables on some days, while in Iowa, wind produces a third of the state's electricity. Yet as renewable energy grows, the falling costs that have helped fuel its growth can get turned on their head, and overall costs can begin to rise. At the same time, the incremental environmental benefits of renewables can diminish as more wind and solar connect to the grid. On today's podcast, we'll examine the challenges that arise when renewables become the major focus of decarbonization efforts. Today's guest is Carl Hausker, a senior fellow at the Climate Center and a senior fellow with the World Resources Institute's Global Climate Program, where he works on decarbonization of the energy system. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Now, Carl, you authored a report titled From Risk to Return, Investing in a Clean Energy Economy that advocates for rapid decarbonization of the energy system with a close eye to economic and political challenges that may arise along the way. Can you give us a a quick background on that and more broadly on your decarbonization research? Sure. Uh, The report uh, From Risk to Return was sponsored by the Risky Business Project, the collaboration of Michael Bloomberg, Tom Steyer, and Paul and uh, Hank Paulson. Uh, they've done s- some great work over the years, both on the impacts of climate change, and this report was on a mitigation scenario for the United States. Uh, and they asked WRI to lead this effort, and uh, the report came out in uh, late 2016. We modeled several pathways the U.S. could follow to reduce CO2 emissions from the energy sector by 80%. By, by 2050. And uh, the thrust of the report was that this is technically possible. We can do it with commercial or near commercial technologies, and we can do it at uh, a reasonable cost. Uh, we can do it with investments uh, that are only slightly greater than the 18% of GDP or so that we in- invest uh, now as a portion of the whole economy. So the report had, had two, two messages, really. One is that uh, Large reductions like that are possible, uh, and also that uh, the other thrust of the, the report was that we need to bring sort of a full suite of technologies to bear on this problem. Uh, the report has scenarios that uh, allow us to reach those emission goals with mixtures of renewables and, in some scenarios, nuclear power expansions and, in some scenarios, expansion of carbon capture and sequestration on fossil fuel plants, all with a underlying uh, large increases in the overall efficiency of the economy. So that was the, that's the, the report uh, in, a, in a nutshell. And I, I should also emphasize that it's, those kind of conclusions are very much in the mainstream of energy and climate modeling, uh, as exemplified by the Obama administration's mid-century strategy report, which came out also in late 2016 with a similar goal of reaching 80% emission reductions by 2050. And it's also consistent with the modeling you see from the International Energy Agency and the IPCC that the, that the large reductions we need by mid-century are possible and that they can also be done at a reasonable cost. They're not free, but they can be done at 
uh, by only uh, expending, you know, one to one, one and a half percent of GDP. And we need a full suite of zero carbon or low carbon technologies to get there. You know, focusing in on that, what you just mentioned regarding costs for just a moment, the cost of wind and solar power have fallen dramatically in recent years, which is helping to refuel the rapid deployment and optimism that the climate goals can be met. Are we ultimately looking at an electric system dominated by renewables? Yes. Uh, a lot of the, the mainstream modeling that I, that I described and, and true in the, the Risky Business Report uh, shows that renewables could easily make up uh, 40, 50, 60 percent uh, of a future electricity supply. Uh, our National Renewable Energy Lab has done scenarios uh, uh, up to 80 percent or sometimes even higher, showing that, that, this, that these kind of levels are technically feasible. The economics are going to shake out depending on how the cost of different technologies uh, evolve. Uh, I think it's also important to note that the to really decarbonize the whole economy, not just the power sector, we will have to electrify lots of end uses. Uh, in transportation, of course, we're already seeing the growth of electric vehicles. In buildings, we will need to move toward more uh, direct use of electricity for heating, uh, air conditioning, uh, and you know, clothes drying, and all those uh, options where we we sometimes uh, are burning fossil fuels, like in our water heaters, and also in industry. There's a lot of end uses that can be converted to electricity. So, the the decarbonized economy of the future will actually have a much greater demand for electricity, which is uh, could provide tremendous growth opportunities for electric utilities. At the same time, we need to decarbonize. Uh, that electricity. So the uh, the share of renewables could go quite high, but uh, uh, I also need need to mention that you know renewables in the form of wind and solar, the the two that sources that appear to be going to dominate the future, are variable in their output. Of course, uh, solar only when the sun shines. It has a daily cycle that's very predictable. And then it has a, 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 a pattern of production across different days depending on, on clouds that's relatively unpredictable. Uh, with wind, uh, similar variability in output uh, that uh, we, we cannot control or, or predict with, with absolute precision. So when we, as we move to a higher and higher portion of renewables in an electric system, we have to turn to what are called integration strategies. And there's really three main integration strategies to deal with a variable output uh, renewable source. One is to expand the transmission system of, uh, of the U.S. or whatever country we're dealing with so you can easily wheel power across much greater geographic distances and this can kind of smooths out some of the variability of renewables. It doesn't eliminate it, but it can smooth out uh, wind power, it can smooth out uh, solar power to, to some extent, uh, where it's always, uh, it may be cloudy in one place, but sunny uh, in another. Of course, you can't eliminate the, the daily cycle of, the, of uh, day and night, of course. The second main integration strategy is shifting demand toward when those power sources are producing. And this is really a, a big paradigm shift. Uh, usually, you know, we built the electric power system where we take demand sort of as a given and then we build power plants of different types to supply that demand. 
Uh, as we move to more renewables, we'll have to find ways that we can shift load or have demand match the availability of supply. And we've experimented with relatively small load shifting uh, to date, but that load shifting would have to become much more aggressive uh, in the future. And then finally, the third big integration strategy is uh, if you can't shift load to when the power is produced, uh, then you want to take that, that uh, excess power above the load at the time and store it. Right now we have pumped storage, uh, pumped hydro storage facilities in uh, several places in the country. A relatively small amount of electricity uh, in terms of total demand is stored there. In the future, we would look to uh, uh, battery technology, perhaps even massive thermal storage of, of energy to take advantage of wind and solar at its peak, store it, and then use it when, when it's demanded. All of these, of course, have a cost attached with them, but those are the three big integration strategies for a high renewables uh, uh, view of the future. Now, those, uh, those three strategies, the details of those strategies uh, still need to be worked out in terms of implementing them. In the meantime, states are moving forward with aggressive strategies. California, notably right now, uh, the, the state legislature in California is now looking at a bill, SB 100, uh, that would mandate 100% renewable energy by 2045. So these things are actually obviously happening right now. Um, what are other states doing at this point? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's really interesting you mentioned the, the, the California example. Uh, one important thing to note about uh, the California bill that passed the Senate side of the, of the legislature is that it's actually a zero-carbon bill, 100% uh, zero-carbon by 2045, because the drafters realized after it worked its way through the process that 100% renewables, as conventionally defined, uh, without including hydro, was going to be extremely hard to meet. So they, the bill actually has a 60% pure renewables, solar, wind, geothermal, usual, by 2030, but then the language changes. So in 2045, it's 100% zero carbon. So California is allowing its in-state hydro and then hydro imports to count uh, toward the goal. And it's very interesting that hydro uh, is not variable in the way that solar or wind is. Hydro can operate in sort of a baseload production mode and to some extent can follow load. So it's very important to know that California has this vision only with sort of the ace in the hole uh, renewable source of hydro, which is uh, very, uh, very critical to uh, balancing load uh, in the future. Running down some other states, it's interesting that Hawaii has actually enacted a state law calling for 100% renewables by 2045. Uh, a bit of an outlier in that, of course, Hawaii has uh, tremendous uh, uh, solar resources, wind resources, biomass resources. We're also seeing some other countries being able to be uh, more aggressive along that line. Um, uh, some South American countries feel they have just such abundant uh, renewable resources that uh, they may consider that. But we've also seen other states, the introduction of bills calling for 100% renewables in states like Massachusetts, Washington, Oregon, New York, and even right here in our backyard in Pennsylvania with the HB uh, 2132. 
those are places that do not have the the abundant uh, renewable resources of a of a Hawaii, and in, in my view, need this that needs to be approached much more cautiously. Well, it's interesting. I hate to keep bringing up California here, um, but it's obviously where a lot of action is taking place to this point. They have already started to see one of the major challenges with integrating particularly high amounts of solar or increasingly large amounts of solar, and that's the duck curve. Can you talk to us about the duck curve and why it's a challenge? Yes, the duck curve. Uh, first hatched in California, uh, but we are actually seeing small versions of it uh, in some other states as uh, uh, as use of uh, solar photovoltaic power grows. Uh, if you can picture for a moment sort of a, a traditional uh, demand curve for electricity tends to uh, be low in the morning and then grow over the day, uh, sometimes peaking in the afternoon uh, with if it's in the summer, particularly with air conditioning load, uh, and then decreasing somewhat into the evening and then dropping off late at night as uh, everyone goes to bed and as uh, businesses shut down. That's a traditional load curve. What is What we've seen in California, which has had the highest solar uh, penetration of, of uh, early on is that because solar produces in a pattern of low low in the morning peaking at noon or early afternoon and then dropping to zero back, back to zero when the sun goes down we see that as if you can imagine kind of hollowing out the middle of the day uh, in terms of the the, the net demand r- r- remaining on the system whether that solar is uh, in a person's home and like literally uh, reducing their demand, or if the solar is is owned by the, the utility and pumping into the system, the demand that is left to be met uh, does increase in the morning, but then it hollows out and drops during the middle of the day, only to then ramp back up sharply in the early evening. And if you uh, if you if you Google duck curve, uh, you'll see that the re- the uh, resulting load shape is actually looks a little bit like the back of a duck. So this is happening in California now. They are scrambling to make sure that they have enough natural gas plants to quickly ramp up uh, in the uh, when evening comes. There's a cost attached to that. They're also at the forefront of adding storage uh, that could ramp up quickly uh, in the evening to meet that. And of course, there's a cost associated with that too. Uh, and we're seeing sort of baby forms of this phenomenon uh, in some other states recently. Uh, the trade press highlighted Massachusetts, the duck is hatching. So this is, uh, that, that's an example of that variability in production uh, that I noted earlier and then how you need integration strategies to make sure that you keep the power supply steady 24-7 at uh, greater than 99.9% reliability. I just want to clarify here for just a moment. It's not that there's no load during the middle of the day, but uh, rooftop solar in particular is picking up so much of that load that the utilities aren't actually seeing the load out there. It's, it's being reduced before they're ever being called upon to serve that load. Absolutely, that correct? that's correct. Yeah, the load is still there. And the, the, the solar reduces it reduces the net load dramatically. So the utility is not serving up much electricity. And then suddenly at 5 o'clock when everybody goes home, turns on their TVs, ACs, starts cooking on their electric ranges, then they really have to ramp up that output very, very quickly, which is a challenge to meet that load as the sun goes down at the same time. Correct. Um, you know, um, one of the ironies that we're seeing with, with uh, renewable energy is that at some point, 
costs actually rise. Why, why is that? Mm-hmm. Yes, the the as I as I mentioned, the cost of integrating renewable power uh, uh, is is not insignificant. Uh, at very low levels of penetration, uh, it seem it's uh, de minimis. But in a place like California, and as some of the other states have higher and higher percentages of wind and uh, and solar, we're beginning to see significant costs. And again, there's a cost attached with which with each of the three integration strategies uh, I described earlier. Uh, transmission lines uh, building out uh, and achieving geographic diversity is actually one of the least expensive ways to integrate higher levels of renewables. However, it's actually the political obstacles to building those transmission lines are the bigger problem. Uh, shifting load, the second strategy, uh, is uh, also uh, not without cost. Sometimes you have to pay people incentives to do it or you have the technology hardware costs to shift load. And then finally, the third integration uh, strategy, storage, uh, also comes with a cost. Uh, batteries uh, are in the range of two to three hundred dollars uh, a kilowatt hour right now. Uh, we hope those and expect those costs to come down over time, uh, but uh, but storage is uh, an additional cost to producing the renewable energy because you know to state the obvious, storage does not produce electricity; it simply moves it around in time. So it's an additional capital cost on top of whatever you spent to actually generate the electricity. So the headlines say that, that renewables are the cheapest or are on their way to, to getting there. It's kind of a paradox. Yes, absolutely. And this is – it's so, so important for your, for your, for your listeners to, to understand this, this paradox. Many, many headlines uh, over the last couple of years have said that, that uh, wind and solar are now – have reached grid parity with conventional generation by fossil fuels or nuclear – uh, in some cases, they are even beating conventional uh, power sources. And what what does that mean? And how how do we reconcile that with the uh, uh, with the integration costs that I've described that tend to increase as uh, as we use more renewables? And the, the 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 key to the paradox is to understand that when when a headline says that that solar or wind has reached three cents or four cents uh, a kilowatt hour. That is using a metric called the levelized cost of energy, or LCOE. And this is a useful metric, but it's not the whole story. The LCOE is basically taking the capital and any operating costs of a uh, of a power plant and considering it in isolation and just saying. Uh, how much power does this plant put out over time? What are its costs over time? And then divide output by cost, and you get uh, a levelized cents per kilowatt hour of electricity. Uh, and that's maybe an interesting place to start an analysis of, of what is cheapest. But it's important to realize that uh, you cannot look at any power plant in isolation. Uh, a power plant is always part of an electrical grid an incredibly dynamic and uh, interdependent set of power plants and wires. And uh, you can put a power plant, uh, an additional power plant on that grid, and uh, it will interact with the other power plants. So when we 
uh, put a uh, you know a single additional solar plant uh, when a power system is is five percent wind. Uh, it has a very different cost than if you put that same solar plant and added it to a grid that is already 90% solar or 50% solar. It's because of the integration costs. Integration costs almost zero at very low levels of penetration. They start to grow, as we see in California with the duck curve, at at, uh, 15% penetration, and they will continue to increase as we reach higher and higher levels uh, of renewables. Some analysts dismiss these and say, oh, you know, they're only going to be a tiny fraction of total system costs. But I think the more credible body of modeling uh, out there indicates, and including studies by the National Renewable Energy Lab, indicates that those integration costs uh, start to go nonlinear at some point and escalate very sharply, particularly as you approach 100% renewables. So this is the big cautionary note that I want to sound, that 100% renewables sounds good. It's often used kind of as a rallying cry. However, if you're really trying to drive a system to that and exclude all other sources of electricity, you are going to hit the wall. You're going to hit a nonlinear part of the cost curve where costs escalate dramatically. Do we know where that is? We don't know Exactly where costs go nonlinear, it depends on the system. It depends on the mix of solar and wind and other dispatchable technologies uh, like uh, natural gas plants or baseload in the form of nuclear or hydro. But beyond that, you're going to be likely hitting some very high costs. So is curtailment part of that problem? Yes, absolutely. Curtailment is is linked uh, to all of this. Uh, If you haven't successfully integrated your variable renewable power through transmission or load shifting or storage, then you're producing it, but you're not using it. It's just spilled. It's wasted, sometimes called curtailment or overgeneration. And when that happens, then uh, the original LCOE number, you thought thought you're producing power at, at four cents a kilowatt hour, you're not producing as much as you thought. And so your average cost uh, from that plant goes up. So, yeah, we're seeing the curtailment uh, phenomenon uh, in some states at some times when uh, wind and solar is, is producing like crazy, but they're, the utility is unable to use it. And that curtailment problem, I understand, is, is a big issue in the Pacific Northwest uh, within the Bonneville Power Administration's uh, area because they're basically having to turn off a lot of wind turbines uh, because they're, they're feeding too much electricity into the, into the grid. Mm-hmm. Right. I think when hydro is, is very, very abundant uh, and wind too, then something has to give. They can't use it all. You know, one other thing that's a bit of an irony here is, is per my understanding, I, I think you've actually written about this, um, that the environmental or the incremental environmental benefit of renewable energy decreases the more of that energy you add to the system. Can you talk about that? Uh, that is to say, only under, under, under certain circumstances. For instance, uh, in Germany, uh, they have been building uh, renewables very heavily, and they've been retiring their nuclear plants. And what's happened in, in Germany is that they are balancing, uh, they are integrating the, that renewables with the use of gas and sometimes their old fleet of coal plants. 
And so Germany's emissions uh, are no longer dropping, even though their renewable uh, energy use is going up. I think we have to be really careful in other parts uh, of the world and, and in the U.S. also uh, if we, uh, if we re- early if we retire our nuclear plants early, if we uh, build out renewables very heavily, uh, if our integration strategy is simply to rely on uh, gas-powered plants to fill gaps, then our emissions could actually go up. Uh, hopefully that will not happen. Now, nevertheless, companies, cities, and states all over the country are upping their clean energy commitments. Is that a problem given what we've just been talking about? No, not at, not at this stage. I, uh, I think it's great that cities, uh, corporations, colleges, and even individuals are asking to buy 100% renewable electricity. Uh, this increases demand in, in the near term at a time when the you know, overall penetration the, in the country is still relatively low. Uh, I would contrast that, which is sort of like a demand side of the equation, uh, increasing uh, the demand for renewable electricity by relatively small entities. Contrast that with an entire state or a country committing to 100% renewable electricity on the taking it sort of from the supply side. And that, uh, that strategy could uh, run into the problems that I've described uh, with escalating costs, with uh, integration issues, um, all of which are much more manageable if we keep a more diverse set of technologies uh, in the electric mix as we move towards zero emissions overall. You know, another issue I just wanted to, to bring up here is, uh, and you've mentioned this before also in your work, um, uh, the move to renewables will in a way change our relationship with the energy we consume. Today, generation follows load, meaning when electricity demand rises or falls, the amount of energy produced is ramped up or ramped down accordingly. Um, but with a grid that's dominated by renewables, the opposite may be true. What challenge does that present? Yes, you're really uh, hit, hitting on an, an interesting issue. Uh, one of our integration strategies is uh, load shifting. And uh, at very high levels of renewables, uh, we'll have to make various changes, partly assisted by technology, perhaps also assisted by, by habits and culture where we shift our demand for electricity to the times when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Uh, and that could uh, influence when we, uh, uh, when we run our air conditioners, dry our clothes, cook our food, heat our water. Uh, it could drive uh, when and where we charge electric vehicles uh, in the future. Is it going to be overnight? Uh, is it going to be largely uh, during the middle of the day? Uh, because uh, taking advantage of uh, the the highest solar output. Those are all interesting questions uh, sort of related to the the changes uh, we may need to make. There's other things sort of related to acceptability too. Uh, When we talk about integration strategies, of course, I mentioned transmission, a relatively cheap integration strategy. Yet uh, our decision-making on expansion of transmission lines is terribly balkanized. Uh, across uh, local government, state government, national government. Um, Often people don't like transmission lines in their backyards. Um, We also need to think about public acceptability uh, on on windmills. Uh, Some people don't like 
to uh, be on the beach and see offshore uh, windmills, even though they're a tiny little white stick uh, on, on the horizon. Um, that kind of public acceptability on large-scale deployment of wind onshore, offshore, and solar arrays uh, will affect uh, the mix of power sources in the future. And of course, uh, you know, I've mentioned uh, nuclear and carbon capture as uh, zero carbon and low carbon ways to produce power. Those face their own public acceptability issues. Uh, they face their own cost issues. Uh, we definitely need uh, additional R&D and uh, deployment to bring the cost of those technologies down. And uh, the public, you know, needs to think, needs to go through a process of deciding which of which of our low and zero carbon uh, power sources uh, is it willing to accept uh, significant growth of in the future. Carl, in January, we had Jesse Jenkins of MIT's Electric Power Systems Center on the podcast. I, I know you know uh, Jesse. And, and he laid out a vision for a low-cost, very low-carbon electricity system that actually requires uh, less renewables and more nuclear power as emissions approach zero. And this would be the most economic way to, to approach uh, zero emissions. If this turns out to be the case... Is there a way for policymakers to balance the long-term need for deep decarbonization with the more immediate need to really, you know, cut carbon emissions rapidly in the short term? Are the, the two long-term and the short-term, you know, decarbonization goals, are they fundamentally not compatible with each other? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's an incompatibility. Uh, I think the, in the near term, uh, the uh, the cheapest way to reduce our emissions is to build out renewables uh, with when integration costs are relatively low uh, to be more energy efficient. Uh, I think to keep safe nuclear power plants operating uh, and to uh, substitute gas for coal. All of those can bring emissions down in the next five, five to ten years. Longer term, uh, as I've described, you know, those uh, integration costs for renewables will grow. We're not sure exactly how fast they will grow. Uh, it all depends on the overall mix uh, of technologies we use, uh, how costs evolve. As far as uh, the scenario that Jesse Jenkins laid out here earlier, uh, I think it's uh, very much in sort of the mainstream of the modeling that I described at the outset um, where if you if you look at ways to meet uh, power load uh, 30, 40 years from now and you have uh, renewables in, you have carbon capture as an option, you have nuclear as an option at plausible costs that we expect uh, in, in that time frame, then the, the model will often seek a – then you can use the model to seek a least cost solution for meeting – uh, electric load, and you will get that mixture uh, that I described earlier. It might be, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent renewables, depending on your uh, on your cost assumptions. So Jesse's scenario is very, very plausible uh, un under that that kind of uh, uh, model. Um, how things may may play out, there'll be an interplay of uh, the evolution of these technologies. The costs that they come in at thirty or forty years from now, and the political acceptability of of these different technologies. 
So, and because all all of that is going to evolve, the you know the, one of my biggest messages uh, in in this context is that we need lots of options. We need to do R&D across the full span of zero and low carbon technologies. We need to begin deployment and try to reach some economies of scale uh, across uh, renewables and a next generation of nuclear plants and carbon capture facilities. So we have the options ready, say, by 2030, when we really need to expand power supplies rapidly and uh, electrify the economy. That's the only path to zero emissions by by mid-century, is electrifying the economy. And we cannot afford to bet all of our chips on a single set of technologies, just solar and wind. We need to spread our chips and see how the, uh, the, the costs and the public acceptability uh, evolves over time. No one can predict with any certainty what the world of 2050 is going to look like. We simply know that we need to get our emissions down 80%, 90%, or all the way to zero in order to preserve a safe climate. Carl, thanks for talking. Thank you very much. Today's guest has been Carl Hausker, Senior Fellow with the Climate Center and Senior Fellow with the World Resources Institute's Global Climate Program. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now. For more energy policy news and research, visit the Climate Center's website at climateenergy.upenn.edu or subscribe to our Twitter feed at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. 